Hey friends, welcome to Girls' Night. I'm Stephanie Mae Wilson, and I'm so happy that you're here. Each week, I have a girlfriend over, and we talk through one of the biggest questions we have about our lives as women. We're talking about friendships and faith and relationships and self-confidence, about our calling in life and how to live every bit of our lives to the full. Life is so much better and easier and absolutely more fun when we navigate it together as girlfriends, and I cannot wait to get started. Friends, I'm so excited about today's episode. Today, we're talking about how looking back at our history helps us understand our present, our future, and ourselves better. Our guest for today's episode is my new friend, Jasmine Holmes. Jasmine is a mom, a historian, a grad student, and a writer. She has just a few things going on. Her newest book is called Crowned with Glory, How Proclaiming the Truth of Black Dignity Has Shaped American History. Now, I wanted to have Jasmine on the show because I've spent a lot of time lately looking back at our history as women. Seeing where we've been and how we got to where things are today, it's given me so much insight and context into my present to know more about my past. So when I saw that Jasmine had written a book kind of on the same theme, I knew I wanted to hear what this has looked like for her. I wanted to hear about the journey of writing this book and about digging back into history, and I wanted to know what she's learned from it. You guys, Jasmine is a brilliant teacher. She answered all of my questions so beautifully, both the huge ones that were probably really hard to answer and also the ones that I worried might be kind of dumb. Her answers were somehow simultaneously simple and easy to understand, but also totally profound. I learned so much in this conversation and I cannot wait to share it with you. Jasmine is a treasure. You're gonna love her. All right, friends, I'm super excited for who you get to meet today. I'm sitting here with my new friend, Jasmine Holmes. Jasmine, thanks so much for coming to Girls' Night. Thank you for having me. For women who haven't met you yet, can you tell us who you are, what you do, and a fun fact about yourself? Yes, Um, I am a historian. I have three children. Um, They are seven, almost five, and two. Um, I'm married to Philip. He's an entrepreneur, so we both work from home. Um, I'm a writer and I'm in grad school and life is crazy. It's a little bit crazy right now, but but happy crazy. So you're like basically an underachiever who like just has a lot of free time on her hands. I'm a slacker who is definitely not a gifted child. Definitely not. <laughs> I just, that is, yes, you have a lot going on. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have two two-year-olds who are going to be three next month. Oh, um, two. And so... I, yeah, twins. But uh, but I don't have like I don't have three. So anyway, yeah, that's what my my well, but, friends who are t- twin moms first are always like. I don't have anything else to compare it to. It's just yeah, they're just I had twins. Yeah, yeah, it's just how it is. It is. Um, we'll both take naps after this. <laughs> yes. Um. Okay, tell me your fun fact. I'm excited. I have two fun facts, and they come from the fact that I am a homeschooler. Uh, and a total nerd. So I can name all of the presidents in order from Washington all the way to Biden. And if you ask me a state, 98% of the time, I can tell you that state's capital. That is, when I tell you that I am so jealous of that fact, (laughs) I am so jealous of that fact because I was just talking to someone about this. I swear that like, I wish I could take out the lyrics of, I don't know, just off the top of my head, like the thong song and (laughs) replace it with all of the presidents and all of the capitals because I feel like I would get like a D. I could do the capitals better, but the president test, absolutely not. But I mean, like for what though? Because we live in the age of Google. And so it's just like, if you want to know the president that came after Lyndon B. Johnson, you can just look it up in like the same two seconds that it takes place. You know, I know, but okay. But my husband is like the guy who knows everything. And so he always looks at me and is like, where did you go to school? And I'm like, a good school. I just like, I don't know. That fact got replaced with like every lyric to every NSYNC song that has ever existed. And my best friend's phone number growing up. And a bad life. It's not a bad life. My no, it's like Cooper stole my parents' phone number from when I lived at home 10 years ago. That is... Amazing. Yep. I still I still get those fuel points. My parents live out of the country. So their fuel points just were bequeathed to me. And I've just kept the fuel points going all this time. That is, am- that is amazing. That is amazing. 
random thing. Where do your parents live? They live in Zambia. Um, so right oh. above South Africa and right next to Zimbabwe. Cool. Okay, I have so many more questions on that, but I feel like I don't want to derail us. <laughs> we can, maybe we'll ask, we'll ask those at the end. That's really cool. So I want to tell you the backstory of why I really wanted to talk to you. I have been doing a lot of research of my own lately, mm-hmm. um, looking at our history as women and just seeing like where we've been, how we got to the way that things are today, um, like tracing threads back of like, I feel like I'm supposed to do something this way and being like, where did that come from? And it always yeah. starts somewhere. Some person in the 40s wrote a book about whatever and, and women were expected to do. Like it's just all tied together. And so looking back at our past as women has given me so much insight and context into our present as women. Um, and so when I saw that you had written the book that you just wrote, I really, really wanted to hear what you've learned both in the writing of it, but then also like as you've been digging into the past, kind of the just how you've seen it all connect. It's it's like such a theme for me right now. So I basically am just going to like ask a like I know you talked about this somewhere in the book. Tell us everything that you have to tell us. Yeah. So that's kind of that's my plan. Okay. That's exciting. Okay, so tell us first about the book. So the book, um, I have it I have it written down. It's called Crowned with Glory, mm-hmm. How Proclaiming the Truth of Black Dignity Has Shaped American History. Tell us about the book and like, how did this project come about for you? So the book is basically a historical survey of Black abolitionists and how they use the concept of the Imago Dei or the image of God um, to argue against chattel slavery, to say, hey, chattel slavery is wrong because all men... All men are created equal. They're all created in God's image. Um, And because of that, they are worthy of dignity and they're worthy of respect. And it was just, it's a really simple premise, but the simplicity of it is that it was everywhere in abolitionist work. It was everywhere in abolitionist speeches. It was everywhere in abolitionist petitions. It was everywhere in the conversation, the image of God, the image of God, the image of God over and over again. It was like a pillar of abolitionist thought. And I found that so interesting. And whenever I write a book, I always set out to just write what I find to be so interesting. And so I was like, I want to read a book about this. And so and I don't see a book about this that's like in, on the on the level that I want it to be. There's academic books about it and there's dissertations. And But I was like, I want to make, I want to write a book that could be used in the classroom if somebody wanted to use it or they could read, you know, pretty easily. And so that's how that's how Crown of Glory was born. I did a, I wrote a book right before Crown of Glory called Cards in Ebony. Um, and it was about 10 Black women whose faith inspires us. Um, and all of those women were kind of from the same like antebellum period. And so I just dug deeper into the research um, and wrote this one. That's so cool. Okay. So yeah, I have a million questions about, about like really the book cover for... Carved in Ebony, that's what it's called, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is stunning. Isn't it is so stunning? Pretty? Yes, it is so beautiful. Um, it just, I, I remember, I have it like in my brain. Tell me, you said chattel slavery. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Tell me like why, talk to me through that phrasing specifically because I know you didn't like choose it on accident. Yeah, absolutely. So when we talk about slavery, do you like how I just like nerdily grab my glasses as soon as I'm about to go deep into my... Uh, that's my, it's literally a habit that I do. I'm like, so, so. So let me push these up because I'm getting ready. <laughs> I advisor about something and I got so excited and I was doing that, but I was like excited at the same time. And I literally, it was our first meeting ever where I was going to ask him to be my thesis advisor and I flung my glasses across the room. And I was like, please work with me. <laughs> so sorry. I was really, so amazing. He was like, you're really passionate. I was like, yes. I am really passionate. Am. This is how passionate <laughs> I need new glasses. I just broke them. The glasses are over there. Hold on. I literally had to like be like, one second. Like, go get them. <laughs> back. But whenever we talk about slavery, a, a lot of times people are confused about why the slavery in America is different from slavery as it was practiced in other places, in other times. Um, and so chattel slavery is just a terminology that talks about the idea of human property. So there's all different kinds of slavery. There's slavery because your 
your tribe beat another tribe and you take those people into forced servitude. Um, there's the kind of slavery where somebody has a debt and so they go into forced servitude in order to pay off the debt. Um, there is, and then there's the kind of slavery that we talk about in America, which is a slavery that's based on race, um, a slavery that is generational. So it's passed down from generation to generation and you can't get out of it. And it's also passed down through the mother instead of the father. In England, for instance, so England had a pretty similar like baseline for slavery in the 1700s. But according to British law, if you are a white male slave owner and you have a child with a black enslaved woman, that child is free. And you have to take care of that child and you have to provide for that child because you're that child's father. Well, in America, they flipped the role and said, okay, if you are a white slaveholder and you have a child with a black enslaved woman, the child follows a condition of the mother. So that slaveholder doesn't have a child anymore. That slaveholder has more property. And so the idea is just this completely, because um, the slave trade, like the actual transatlantic going to Africa, bringing people overseas, um, was officially ended in America in the year 1808. But from 1808 to 1865, Slavery in America grew three times as large. How'd that happen? Well, the whole idea of breeding practices and forcing Black women to have as many children as they could um, and talking about their breeding and their slavery, the kind of the same way that you would talk about, um, honestly, cattle, chattel, um, the kind of things that are chattels. We still talk about chattel now, um, but we do now, we, we, we mean land, we mean goods, we mean um, animals. And um, unfortunately, uh, black folk used to be lumped in with that. So that's what I mean by child slavery. Are you kidding me? No, I know. <laughs> I know. It's, you know, I, I think one of the things that I that I learned so much is that these things are not incidental. Um, I feel like oftentimes when we talk about slavery in American history, we kind of talk about it like, oh, shucks. Those, those founders, they just, it just grew too big and they didn't know what to do. And so they just had to, but it, once you see like the legislative, like, no, we're making steps to keep this and we're making steps to protect this and we're exploiting those steps. Um, once you see that, it just, it puts things in a whole new light for sure. Yeah. I'm going to, it's going to take me a minute. To no, I, I didn't, I didn't, yeah, I didn't know that. You said that teaching fueled you for your future, mm -hmm. but you ended up walking away from it. Mm -hmm. Something you may not know about me is that I'm fairly particular when it comes to fragrances especially the ones I have in my home. Don't get me wrong, I love lighting candles, but a lot of the ones I've found in stores have overpowering scents and use chemicals that end up giving me a headache. Plus, I learned that the candle industry contributes to a large amount of carbon emissions and toxicity in our air. That's why I've recently made the switch to Notes Candles, which also happens to be today's Girls' Night sponsor. I love notes because their scents are high quality but don't smell overly sweet or chemically. But what's even more amazing is that they are on a mission to help eliminate single-use candle vessels with their more earth-friendly option. Did you know that there are almost 2 billion candles sold each year and almost all of them are likely to end up in landfills for the next 1 million years? Talk about wasteful. But thankfully, Notes does things differently with their refillable candle system that allows you to use your candle vessels again and again and again. I love this because it's way more sustainable than buying a new candle jar every time you go to the store, and you don't have to feel guilty about throwing your old candle jars in the trash. Plus, it's so easy to do and actually really fun. You just place the wick they provide you in your reusable Notes jar, fill it up with their wax beads, light your candle, and enjoy your fragrance for up to 36 hours. Once you're ready for a new candle, you just repeat the same steps. They have 13 incredible fragrances to choose from, which are all handcrafted by fragrance experts at Notes Home Base in South Carolina. I am obsessed with their vanilla and pepperwood scent. It's cozy and warm and perfect for a movie night with your friends. But they also have other amazing fragrances like citrus and fresh basil, pistachio and rose water, and bamboo and water lily. I cannot wait to try one for every new season. Be a responsible consumer while not giving up high quality home fragrance by making the switch to Notes. Make the switch and build a starter kit. Right now, Notes is giving listeners 15% off 
and free shipping when you buy a Note starter kit using code GIRLSNIGHT at notescandle.com slash girlsnight. Just use code GIRLSNIGHT when placing your order. That's code GIRLSNIGHT at notescandle.com slash girlsnight. In the last few years, I've prioritized purchasing food products with higher quality ingredients for my family and myself. Products that have more of the real stuff and less of the fake stuff. And it's been so much easier to make that happen since I found Thrive Market. Thrive Market is my new go-to for buying groceries and household items like vitamins and personal care products. The best part is I can order everything online from my sofa and it's quickly shipped right to my doorstep, saving me so much time. If this is your first time hearing about them, Thrive Market only carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and sourcing methods. They actually restrict hundreds of ingredients across their food and cleaning categories, making it so much easier to maintain a healthier lifestyle. You can even use their on-site filters to fit your lifestyle needs. For example, you can look for low sugar alternatives, gluten-free items, or organic kid snacks. They have Annie's, Once Upon a Farm, and Dave's Organic Bread, all staples in our weekly grocery trip. But they also have brands and products I've never heard of, which is awesome because I'm always looking for healthy and delicious things to feed the girls and myself. Thrive Market is not only a one-stop shop for basically everything on my grocery list, but it gave me tons of ideas for products I didn't even know about. And by becoming a Thrive Market member, I save money on all of my grocery orders. Along with saving money, you're also helping a family in need with Thrive Market's one-for-one membership matching program. So if you join, they give. Friends, I seriously look forward to my Thrive Market box every time. They have an incredible product selection with brands that are better for you and for the planet. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com slash girlsnight for 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash girlsnight. Thrivemarket.com slash girlsnight. I feel like this, I, I'm excited to hear you tell us more about this because I feel like this is going to give us more insight into like the the book and the kind of the direction it took. Yeah. So tell me, like, why did you quit teaching? Oh, so many reasons. Um, so many reasons. I quit teaching in 2021, which I feel like so many teachers, <laughs> when I say that year, like, yeah, yeah, the pandemic is going on. We're ramping up on... Um, you know, stopping the woke and the 1776 commission is out. And, you know, there's there's just all of these things going on. And I live in Jackson, Mississippi, and I was teaching at a very small Christian um, private school. And it, it was so hard because I loved, I loved teaching. I loved the kids that I was teaching. I was enjoying myself so much, but also was feeling the mounting pressure of there is, there are these battle lines being drawn um, about history, about quote-unquote critical race theory. There are these witch hunts that are happening with teachers who are teaching certain things and using certain words. I'm teaching American history. I'm the only Black teacher in the school. And oh I'm gosh. teaching to a bunch of white kids, you know? And so it's just, it just built into kind of a, I'm just going to go. You know, nobody asked me to leave. Nobody told me that I needed to leave. But I felt like it was time for me to leave. And the thing about living in Jackson, I talked to my husband about this all the time because he had a similar experience with his last job here in Jackson, was it's very Southern. And so it's very like, you can stay as long as you want to stay. And then you're like, I'm going to go. And they're like, oh man, hate to see you go. (laughs) And so that was was definitely my experience of, oh man, well, I get it. Because you know, we a little do, conflict diverse here. In yeah, the South. yeah, yeah. Bless we our get hearts. It. We get it. Like we get, we get what's happening. We get the landscape. We get that battle lines are being drawn, and so that's why I left the classroom. Um, but I loved teaching. I miss it all the time. I miss it every day. Um, I just told my friend the other day. Um, we were talking. She has she has her PhD 
Um, she just graduated from Vanderbilt and she works at Penn State and is just like... Also lazy. You know what I'm also saying? Also lazy. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it was so funny because she's from England. So she got a job at Penn State and she was like, oh yeah, I'm going to work at Penn State. And everybody was like, that's amazing. And she's like, oh, is Penn State a big deal? And we're like... Yes. It is. Yes, it is. Yes. Uh, so I was talking to her and I was like, honestly, I think she says, well, what do you want to do with your degree? Like, what's your dream? And I said, I just want to make, I just want to force people to be interested in the things that I'm interested in and to make them read what I want them to read or they don't get a good grade. And she was like, you just really missed the classroom. I was like, I really do. I do. I really <laughs> I do. really do. Yeah. Talk to us about critical race theory. Mm-hmm. What is it and why is everyone angry? You know, I even feel like though these days, even that phrase is being used a lot less. What I've noticed is that the the, the terminology kind of shifts and changes. So when I was um, just out of college, I remember that everybody was talking about cultural Marxism. Everybody was like, cultural Marxism this and cultural Marxism that and cultural Marxism this. And then after that, it was like everybody was talking about social social justice warriors, SJWs. And it was like SJW this and SJW that. And then it was like this period where it was like critical race theory. And then now I feel like we're in this period of where it's like the word is woke. And so even though all of those things are slightly different things, I think what people mean when they say them is the idea of social justice, the idea that there are inequities in this country that are based on race, that are based on sex, that are based on gender expression, that are based on all of these things, and that they are part of the laws of this country, they are part of the social networking of this country, um, and they're kind of baked into this country. And what do we do? How do we, how do we address those things? Um, now, critical race theory handles that legislatively. And I want to just really, really reiterate that it's something that's taught on a, not a, even just a college level, like a graduate law school level. So critical race theory is not a simple, it's not a simple concept. It's something that lawyers learn about in law school in order to have a principle for how they approach laws, lawmaking, and the changing of laws. Um, but the understanding of it has kind of trickled down to mean I'm concerned that certain laws are putting forward racism, are pushing the agenda of racism. And so anytime somebody says that, it's kind of gets put into the critical race theory box, but then the box is really big and nobody really knows what's all in the box when they're talking about it. And it just gets, yeah, it gets it gets so confusing. I don't know what the next word's going to be um, after woke, but I feel like it's woke now, right now. So the concern with teaching, so no one's teaching critical race theory in schools. Except for in graduate levels to like future lawyers. Absolutely. Um, But when people are concerned about what's being taught, they're upset that it's being brought up that there are laws and policies that promote like keeping other, like some people down and so that other people can go up. Yes. And so it's more, it's, I think if people are honest, what they're more so saying is not that they think that critical race theory, if they understood what critical race theory is, not that that, not that it's being taught in schools, but that the teachers who are teaching are coming from an understanding that is rooted in some of the things that critical race theory believes. And so then those teachers are then bringing that understanding to their students. I think if I'm being the most charitable, I think that's what people mean when they talk about critical race theory being in schools. So why is that bad? You know, it depends on who you ask. A lot of Christian parents have an issue with critical race theory and all of the terminology that I just use because it's not Christian terminology, right? It's, it is of the world. It's not, it's not something that a bunch of theologians sat together and, and, and figured out. It's something that intellectuals and people in the academy um, have come up with and are describing. And I, and I think that a lot of times um, evangelicals in this country are inherently suspicious of the academy. Um, and sometimes that's with good reason, right? Sometimes you don't, you, as soon as you say you're a Christian, you just don't get taken seriously by people in, in certain accordance of higher ed. So again, I want to have a charitable understanding, right? I don't just, it didn't just come out of nowhere. Um, but I think a lot of people don't think that you can 
they don't see the overlap between Christian ideals and some of the same things that people who espouse critical race theory believe. They don't believe that there can be overlap. They believe that it has to be, it either has to be something that is from the Bible and completely divorced from anything that a secular person has ever thought or said, or it's wrong. Okay, that, I mean, I guess that kind of, kind of makes sense. But like, where my brain just went back to was Imago Dei, Mm -hmm. which is like, that seems like the common, common ground there. Yeah. So is that like, I guess, is that where like this book came from? For sure. I mean, when I started writing the book, it was very much at the beginning of a lot of these conversations about education, about book banning, about all these things. I already kind of had the book in the barrel. This is what I want to write. And then all of this stuff started happening. And it was like, this is really what I want to write. Um, because <laughs> I feel like people think of, they think of all these ideas that fall under the umbrella of critical race theory as being completely divorced from biblical ideas. But there is an argument to be made, and I make it in Crown with Glory, that these ideas predate the term critical race theory. These ideas are older than Marx himself, let alone Marxism. You know, they these are ideas that Christians have had from the Bible from the very beginning and understandings that Christians have had of this country and of its deficits from the very beginning. And they base their concerns um, in the Bible. And there's a way, there's a way to do that 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 is not threatened by fill in the blank with whatever boogeyman we're talking about um, at a particular moment. Yeah. Okay. So talk to me about how I okay, again, I'm asking these questions because I'm like. Tell us, tell us what you have to say about this, because I just wanna I wanna hear all of it. Why is representation in history so important? I know that you talk about how it can shift like the whole historical narrative, and I wanna hear more about that. So um I went to a very small Christian college um right after so I graduated. I was in a master's program that I didn't finish. Um, I say I didn't finish because I don't want it to, I'm in a master's program now, so I don't want it to sound like I have several masters. I literally am going to finish this one, hopefully. Um, I didn't finish this one. You are going to finish this one. And um, so I'm I'm sitting in my professor's office and it's, again, a very small Christian university because often when I tell this story, people are like, what? But you've got to understand this was a Baptist tiny university. And so my professor was, um, he had the autobiography of Malcolm X on his shelf. And I was like, oh, I, I read that book. Um, do you teach that? And he's like, I used to teach it, but a lot of parents didn't want me to teach it in class because it kind of made their kids feel uncomfortable. And asking the obvious question, I was like, white kids, white kids? He was like, yeah. And I said, you know, it's really funny because nobody ever asked me if I felt comfortable when we were reading Huck Finn. Nobody asked me. Like, <laughs> just we're re- it's a classic. We're reading it. This is just how people thought. Here it is. And he's like, wow, I never thought about it like that. Because why Because why would he have to? At this predominantly white, super small Baptist university that's so tiny and so Christian that parents can still come to 18-year-olds teachers and be like, don't teach that. I don't like that. The idea that we don't teach things because they don't make, because they make people uncomfortable or they make people feel weird causes us to bypass a lot of history. The idea that children should always look in history and feel at ease, um, causes us to bypass a lot of areas of history. Um, But not only that, it causes children whose history is not captured in the stories of victory that make us feel good. It causes them to be overlooked. And I felt that feeling of being overlooked so often growing up in, you know, at first in private school, then I was homeschooled. So we had a little bit more freedom, but you know, you're still tied to a curriculum when you're homeschooling. And a lot of times the curriculum just didn't have people that looked like me until you got to MLK and then you got to read, I have a dream and then he died, but then that's okay because everything was better after that. And then that's it. Um, And so learning more about representation in history has been such an important experience for me as a Christian, especially because I get to see that God uses all different kinds of people in his story. He uses people from all different backgrounds, from all different ethnicities, from all different journeys. Um, When you only learn a history that looks a certain way, um, it can kind of start to feel like, oh, does God only use people that look like that? Does, does God think more people that look like that than other people? And you can say no all you want, but if you can't give me any examples, what am I supposed to believe? 
my friend Mari, who I just love, she's she's one of the wisest people in my life, and I'm just like so honored that I get to be her friend. Um, she, her daughter Ada, they were reading their kids' Bible, and Ada asked her like, um, like a couple days later, they were just like splashing around in the pool, and Ada was like, "Mommy, does God not like girls?" And she was like, "Excuse me." And Ada was like, yeah, in our, in our Bible, there's just like, all the stories are about boys. And Mari was like, that cannot be true. And she went and she looked and like, sure enough, I think there was like one girl story. And um, she started to like dig deeper and dig deeper and dig deeper. And, and sure enough, like the, the amount of male to female stories that were represented in specifically kids' Bibles. And I mean, granted, like when the Bible was happening, like women didn't get to do much. And so, but that doesn't mean that they didn't. And so it was like, even in in places where there are stories in the Bible of women doing amazing things or participating or being like oh, yeah. at the front and center of things, it was like those stories were ignored in the Bibles, in the kids' Bibles. And so um, Mari, Mari's Bible comes out next year. So she, she's fixed it. But I just, I think, yeah, yeah, that just, that's the first thing that came to mind mm-hmm. is like, if you don't, if you don't see it, then like if you don't see yourself, then how are you supposed to? How are you supposed to know? Yeah, yeah. I know in the book that you talk about the importance of presenting black kids with accurate history because of how it um, like affects their sense of self. Mm-hmm. Can you talk to me about that? Yeah, I remember the first time that I found out that there were black missionaries who had gone to Africa. I was an adult. And I was flabbergasted who were in Africa at the same time that David Livingston was there, who were doing missions work at the same time as Mary Slessor, Gladys Howard, and all the rest of them. Because growing up, I loved, I, I don't know if you ever read, they were little white biographies. They were like white and they had the person's name on the top and they had like a drawing of the person in the middle. And I loved those biographies. I ate them up. But the only Black person that I ever read in one of those biographies, the only Black woman, was Sojourner Truth. And so I knew about Sojourner Truth, but I like, I was like, I guess that's it. I guess, I guess they were just busy being slaves. I don't know. Um, And so I remember when I learned that there were missionaries who had gone overseas, who had not been, it, it blew my mind when I found out that, for instance, Mariah Stewart was a missionary. She was born in Alabama. She was born in slavery. When she grew up in Alabama in slavery, neither free nor enslaved Black people in Alabama were allowed to learn how to read. Neither free nor enslaved in Alabama were allowed to learn how to read. This Black girl grows up in Alabama, ends up growing up, going to Congo, becoming a missionary in the Congo, and helping to translate the Bible into their language. Which just, like, blue. It just is... Incredible. It's incredible. It's just, and it's so unfortunate that I, that I wasn't, I wasn't a child learning this and seeing something aspirational and seeing something beautiful. And, and again, it meant a lot to me to learn about Amy Carmichael. And it meant a lot to me to learn about Gladys Howard. It meant so much to me to learn about Mary Slessor. I loved those. I, like I said, I ate those little biographies up, but there's also an added dimension of learning about someone who you relate to in even even more of a way, you know, um, especially as a as as a person who grew up often as the only black girl in the room, you know, and was just taught about slavery from from a from a standpoint that that made me feel very ashamed of my ancestry instead of being proud of the resilience of my ancestors. Yeah, it's just it's just been such a beautiful thing to like re, to reframe that as an adult, um, and something that I really desire for my children as well. Can you stop me if I'm if I'm like if you're like yeah, just stop me if you need to. Okay, how what was the what were the conversation like? How how was history taught in a way that made you ashamed of your ancestors? Like, how was there a way to to like look at your ancestors in any way other than like there's there's half of the equation is wrong and half of the equation was really, really wronged. Like, yeah. how are you sitting there feeling ashamed? So 
I think oftentimes, and I, it's so funny because a lot of the book, I released two books this year. The first one was actually about shame. So I thought a lot about shame. <laughs> I thought a lot about shame's impact on, on people. Um, I think a lot of it can just be this misplaced feeling of if you're the only Black girl in the room and everybody's talking about slavery in the room and it, you just kind of feel a little awkward and everybody's like, are you okay? Are you like, are you good? Do you feel okay? And everybody, you feel like everybody's kind of looking at you. That part is just embarrassing. It doesn't feel great. And so, you know, as a child, you don't know what to do with that. So some of it's not even like the way that you're being taught. It's the, it's the way that you're not being taught and shepherded through feelings that you have and taught how to like relate to those feelings in a healthy way. Do you know what I'm saying? So it's like, yeah, you feel that. Okay, what do we do with this? And how do we remind you of, of this? But the other part, um, one of my friends um, just put up um, Stories in Color is an amazing Instagram that I follow. It's a homeschool mom who is always doing, showing resources for um, being more inclusive in education. And she was just talking about a book about Harriet Tubman. And she said, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's an okay book, but I'm not going to use it for my kids. And here's why. And she opens it. And then the very first paragraph of the book, it says, you know, Harriet Tubman was born during a time where a lot of Black people were um, in slavery. Um, but unlike most slaves, Harriet felt like this was wrong and that she had to do something about it. And it was such a, it's just like one clause. Unlike most slaves, this idea that most slaves were just really happy really? to be slaves. We're just like, cool. Yeah. This, this is good. This is all I know. It's great. I don't have any greater aspiration from this. But Harriet was remarkable because she had more aspirations than your average slave. Little things like that play into this idea that Black people are other, that our wishes, that our desires, that our, that our quest for dignity is somehow other than our white counterparts. You know, nobody would at all be surprised that a white people group who was kept in the kind of human bondage and was exploited to the degree that Black people were in the United States, nobody would be surprised if there was an uprising. Because it'd be like, yeah, you can't just keep people like that. Like, you can't, like, people are not meant to live like that. But our idea of people sometimes needs to be expanded to include people even when they don't look like you. And I feel like I experienced a lot of that growing up where the vision was just not expanded. And again, it wasn't maliciousness on the, on the part of my teachers. It wasn't maliciousness on even probably the part of the textbook creators. Um, but if you don't have Black people in the room and if you're coming from a majority context all of the time and you're thinking, I want to make sure that white kids don't feel awkward about their ancestry, but you're not concerned about the Black kids in the room, then that's the kind of educational resources that you get. Hey, this is like such a side note, but I'm, I'm looking at something right Right now, we, I was looking to make like a, I had like a really big wall in our house that I needed to fill. And so I ended up tearing up a book and like overlapping all these pages. And I was looking for like really beautiful, it like turned out really cool. And it took me like 20 minutes. Um, but I was looking for, I wonder if I can, no, I can't show you because it'll, I'll mess it up and I won't be able to get you back. I was looking for a book with like, just like really beautiful, like yellowed pages. And I wanted it to look old. And so I found this used bookstore and the guy showed me like all these really important old books. And I was like, no, I'm not like, I need something right. that like no one really cares about, but that like, you know, has, has a little bit of tint to it. Um, and so I found a copy of Huck Finn and I was like, hey, this is an old book I was supposed to read in, you know, middle school. This is a classic. This will be like, I don't know, perfect. And so I bought that and I bought like, I don't know, Pride and Prejudice or something like yeah, that. Yeah. And I'm pulling out the pages and I'm going, what in the world? Mm -hmm. Like, I, I, it was like, I wasn't even reading it. And I'm tearing about like tearing pages being like, okay, there's the N word. There's the N word. There's um, okay. Well, I'm definitely not using that. But like, I ended up throwing the whole book away. I don't know that I remembered that right. from it. Like it was, it was, yeah, it was, it was a lot. Yeah, it it is. And it's, it's a lot not to be prepped for too. Yeah. I remember my husband was listening to, um, to Huck Finn on audiobook. Um, and I was like, what are you... So I'm listening to it. And I'm like, what are you listening to? And he's like, it's Huck Finn. I was like, oh, okay. Oh, okay. Because it sounds like just this like, yeah. I was like, what are we doing? Um, <laughs> What's going on? And it was Nick Offerman was narrating it. The, um, Ron Swan. Oh, so I was like, what is yeah. Nick talking about? Oh, he was like, he's narrating Huck Finn. I was like... Okay. Yeah, I bought it because I was like, this is a fun book about like boys horsing around on a boat. And I'm like, okay, was that actually, am I thinking about the wrong 
book here. It's, I don't, anyway. Yeah. And, that, and that's a thing. Like it, it, it is a fun book. It is a fun book. It has all of those parts about it that are unsavory and also those parts about it that are fun. And I think that that's the perfect example of what our history is. It's not just one thing. It's not just like this beautiful, triumphant story. It's got the parts of it that make you wince and the parts of it that make you want to turn away and the parts of it that are like, oh, I I remember the story of America as being something completely different than what this particular page in the story is telling me right now. Um, That doesn't mean that the good stuff that you thought wasn't true necessarily, but it might mean that it's not always true or that it's not the Mm -hmm. whole truth. Yeah, yeah. In your research, what did you discover about the efforts of Southern educators to shift the historical narrative in the Confederacy's favor? Oh. I ask, as I know where a whole bunch of Confederate flags are just off the highway. I know. It's so... It's one of those things where I'm like, I want somebody to make a movie about it. And I want these sweet little Southern ladies to be these sinister bad guys in the movie because they were... Like we talked about earlier with Mississippi and the leaving my job. And they're like, oh, sorry you're leaving darn, we hoped that you would stay. Just kidding. Bye. Um, It's such the personality of the South. So after the Civil War, these Southern women, um, the daughters, the United Daughters of the Confederacy, so daughters of Confederate soldiers, um, all banded together. The South had an image problem because they had committed treason against the United States of America. I was just driving home from dropping my kids off the other day and I saw a uh, an American flag on the bottom and a Confederate flag on the top on a flagpole in somebody's yard. And I was like, that's ridiculous. Like one or the other, because it wasn't both. It was one or the other. And the reason why that flag can stand up there and people can drive by it and it's not like taken down for defamation or treason is because of the efforts of the Daughters of the Confederacy to like rehabilitate the South's image. And so they spent all of this time and money and energy and effort into a few things. So monuments, a lot of the monuments that we see were built in the wake of the Civil War by the United Daughters of the Confederacy um, to glorify Lee and Jackson and, you know, all all these things. Um, Education. So there were a lot of letter writing campaigns from Confederate women um, seeking to change the way that the Civil War was being taught in schools to make sure that Um, the war wasn't about slavery. Like you think that it was, but it wasn't. It was about states' rights. It was about tariffs. Slaves were happy anyway. They were very well treated. And, you know, also a a lot of people were like, it was a missionary endeavor. We we took the heathens. We brought the heathens to America. We gave the heathens Jesus. It's all good. So that, that was a lot of what was going on as well. And so a lot of these ideas kind of moved through Southern classrooms um, and were exported. You know, I do, I do a lot of polls on my Instagram a lot. I ask like, hey, have you ever heard, you know, this whatever element? It's called the lost cause. Um, have you ever heard this element of the lost cause? And a bunch of people from the South are like, yes. And some people from the North are like, I had no idea that people thought this. But some people from the North are like, yes, I have definitely heard that. I definitely had heard that, that the war was not about slavery. I had definitely heard that um, slavery was already on its way out. And I definitely heard, you know, all these other things. And it just goes to show the power of education and the power of shifting educational focus and the power of monuments kind of desensitizing us to the things that we see every day. I see the Confederate flag all the time, all the time. And even as a Black woman, even as a Black woman whose ancestors were enslaved, I don't have the same visceral, violent reaction to the Confederate flag that I probably would if I didn't see it every single day. Yeah. Yeah. Talk to me about the war was about slavery. Yeah. Right? For sure. Um, And the war was about slavery. And they said that it was about slavery. And they had these ordinances of secession. South Carolina made the first one. And they said, we are seceding because the North is threatening our right to hold slaves. And the Mississippi Declaration said, we are seceding because the North is interfering with our right to hold slaves, which is our God-given right. And which makes sense because Black people can be out of the sun longer than we can because their skin color. And then the Texas one said... Wait, I'm sorry. What'd you just say? Uh Uh-huh. So the Mississippi was like, hey, slavery makes sense, okay? Because anyway, look at them. They're made for the sun. It's fine. It's in their ordinance. It's, you can find this all online. Then Texas is my favorite because I'm from Texas and Texas is really good at rehabilitating its image 
Um, I'm actually writing my entire thesis about Texas versus Mississippi and how Texas is really good at rehabilitating her image and Mississippi has not been as good at it. But Texas said in their articles, um, in their ordinance of secession, we're seceding because you are trying to abolish slavery and you're trying to make Black people equal to white people. And that is against the laws of nature. So we are seceding. It's right there in black and white. So the fact that these ladies could take what is in black and white and what is still in black and white and make people doubt it, it's sinister. That's what I'm saying. It's like a thriller. It's a thriller. Somebody's going to write it because it's... But like, did you hear how I asked that? I was like, it was about slavery, dot, dot, dot. Yeah. Right? Like, that's... It's it's interesting because... So I grew up in Colorado and um, that's like, I guess, neither the North or the South. Um, and, uh, but then I've lived in Nashville for the last 10 years and I lived in Georgia for a little bit too. And so it's like, I, there are things that if you grew up here, you would have known or heard or learned or something that like I didn't, but there are things that I've seen and, you know, like there are no Confederate flag. Well, there honestly probably are some, um, in Colorado, but I, I didn't remember like seeing them, but I'm not kidding. There's a, there's a, if you drive down 65 in Nashville, on the right, if you're going towards Nashville, there's like a ring of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and there used to be a statue there of, I'm forgetting his name, but it was like a Confederate statue that was like, how, this guy was responsible for like a like a massacre, like single-handedly responsible for a massacre. And like, why is he, why is this here? Um, I'll remember his name as soon as we hang up. <laughs> um, it happens all the time. Okay, so tell me about what's the double curse of the free Black woman? The idea of the double curse, uh, it comes from a speech from an abolitionist named Robert Purvis. Um, His father was a slaveholder. His mother was an enslaved woman. And so he looked white. He could have passed for white. He often was mistaken for white um, when he was taking transportation and things like that. But he married a Black woman, was a loud abolitionist, and was super vocal. Um, And he also had a daughter who turned out to be a really cool suffragette. And so what he said in his speech um, about the double curse was women should be allowed to vote. And I honestly think it's more important for my daughter to be allowed to vote than my son because my daughter is both a woman and Black, which means that she is fighting against two things that the society does not prize, two things that put her at risk. And so I think she should be able to vote. Like, it's super important. Um, We love Robert Purvis. And so... The idea of the double curse just being, um, in modern terms, another way we would put it in, in, in other no-no terminology that people don't like is intersectionality. Um, but it's this idea that you have these intersecting identities, Blackness and womanhood, that kind of like overlap in ways that make your life a little bit more difficult and a little bit more complicated than somebody who does not have both of those things intersecting. And a little bit is an understatement for sure. Um, especially when you're thinking about Victorian times. So you have this image of Victorian womanhood that is this chaste, untouched, modest, you know, cared for. She can't see a lot of gruesome things because she'll faint. You know, she needs her smelling salts. She's just, oh, she's a lady, right? You have that and that is living and thriving. That image is living and thriving at the same time that women, white women, are being forced to do factory labor that is very dangerous and very grueling that Black women are living in the South, being repeatedly victimized, sexually, physically, spiritually assaulted on all ends, um, being forced to work the same jobs that the men are working, being forced to work the same hours that the men are working, being forced to give their children to other people to raise and take care of so that they can work. You know, you, you have those two things that are like existing in opposition to one another. And so when you have free Black women, they are neither enslaved and like, living up, living the imagery of the enslaved woman, nor are, there, nor are they seen as white women. And no matter what they do, they'll never be seen as white women. They will always be seen as closer to the enslaved woman than they will be seen as a white woman because they're Black. And so that's, that kind of gets to the heart of the double curse as, as Robert Purvis understood it. And as a lot of women articulated it, just that tightrope of having to be a respectable woman um, in a time where respectable womanhood was something that was often withheld from Black women. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. 
Does anyone else feel like they could use more time in the day? There are things you want to accomplish, places you want to go, people you want to connect with, but it feels like you're always falling behind. Something I'm learning recently, well, always, is that none of us can do it all. We all have to figure out what's most important to us, but doing that alone can feel scary and overwhelming. Well, friends, this is one reason why I've come to love therapy. Now tell me if any of this sounds familiar. You're going through something really hard right now, a big loss or a gigantic life transition. You frequently feel anxious, depressed, overwhelmed, or just generally discouraged. You really, really, really want your life circumstances to change, but you don't know how to actually change them. Or you're feeling stuck as you try to work through your past, navigate your present, or figure out your future. Friend, if you can relate to any of this, you're not alone. I've been there and therapy has been the thing that has helped me more than anything else with all of this. In the last 10 years or so, I've learned that strength isn't proving I can do it on my own. It's knowing I don't have to. I am at my strongest when I have a full support system around me and an essential part of my support system is therapy. Therapy can be absolutely life-changing, that is, if you can afford it and find a therapist you like and trust. But of course, that's easier said than done. And that's why I'm so excited to be partnering with this week's podcast sponsor. Our sponsor for today's episode is BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the easiest and most affordable way I've ever found to find a great therapist. It's entirely online and super easy to sign up. You can get started right away. And if you don't love the therapist you're paired with, switching is easy and it's free. If you're going through something hard in your relationships, or if you're in a funk you just can't shake, if you've been feeling anxious or depressed lately, or if you're looking to sort through your priorities this year, BetterHelp is an incredible resource for you. And I'm so thankful that they've given me a promo code that I can share with you to make it even easier to get started. Learn to make time for what's most important with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash friendship today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash friendship. That's really like overlaps some of the research that I've been doing lately about like kind of what I've been looking at is like, what did ideal look like? Mm-hmm. Like what were, who were women told that they had to be throughout history? And, and I stopped for a while on like kind of the time period that you're talking about because um, it really, it was like the first, just the options for, the options for women, I feel like have never been good, <laughs> you know? They're, and there just have always been very few options, if any, but even less for Black women. Mm-hmm. You said that the double curse now, you said that the intersection of womanhood and being Black caused, like, there are more challenges. For those of us who aren't Black, can you talk to us about, like, what are some of the, what are some of the challenges that, like, we may not know about because they're not our daily reality? Mm, the one that comes to mind first, and I always mention this one, so anybody who is listening who has ever heard me do an interview is like, she's going to talk about maternal mortality. And I am. I'm always going to talk about maternal mortality because I live in Mississippi, which has one of the highest rates of Black, in general, it has one of the highest rates of fetal and maternal mortality, period. But it has one of the highest rates of um, Black maternal and Black fetal mortality. And so I moved from Minnesota, which had amazing healthcare, to Mississippi and had my second child. And so my thought process in finding a doctor is taking in okay, Black women are way more likely to die in childbirth than their white or Hispanic counterparts. Okay, so my first assumption is, okay, it's probably because Black women are more likely to be poor and not likely to have the same access to healthcare as white women. Mm -mm. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if you are, doesn't matter your socioeconomic status. It doesn't matter the status of your education. It doesn't matter. It does not matter you as a Black woman are more likely to die in childbirth than your white counterparts, period. It's how somebody like Serena Williams, Serena Williams can have a near-death experience in the hospital. It's how, you know, it's, 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 
it's all these things that just kind of that you have to think about. And so I was like, okay, I need to find a doctor. I need to find so I'm like, I'm like, okay, I'm looking for a black doctor. I'm looking for a doctor who has a low number of C-section rates. I'm looking for a doctor who has all, you know, looking for a hospital that has all these different things. And it's something that you know, in talking about, um, and again, we live in Mississippi, so my white friends are also like, healthcare is just not the best here. We're really doing our best. But I had that added layer of knowledge that in spite of the fact that we're all struggling in this state to try to get the care that we need, um, there's an added level of risk for me. And so there, that's, that kind of plays out. Where does it come from? Is it like poor care? It depends. So I will say, in answer to your question, fetal black fetal mortality rates go down when they have black pediatricians. And that's not me saying that white doctors are being angels of death and not taking care of their patients. That is me saying that a lot of times things present differently in black people. Even I was talking to somebody the other day. Um, there's somebody that I follow on Instagram again who um, will post what a what a deadly rash looks like on a black person versus what it looks like on a white person. But the medical textbook only has it on the white person, right? So, or what this looks like on, you know, it's, it's crazy. So if, if your assumption, if you have a white assumption and you assume that your patients present in the way that most white people present, and then a black person does not present in the exact same way as that white person when they have the exact same risk factors, that puts the black person in even more danger. If you're in medical school and you're not learning how rashes look on, on dark skin and on light skin, you're putting your dark skin patients in danger. If you're in medical school and you're learning what medical history looks like for a white person, but not what a medical history could look like for a black person, then you're putting your black patients into danger. And so making whiteness the default in a medical setting puts everybody who does not fit that construct of whiteness into danger. And it's the same across the board in, in all kinds of areas of society. Thanks for answering that question. I appreciate it. Of course. Okay, in the book, I know you talk about separating the person of Jesus from the racial prejudice of professing Christians. Can you tell us what you mean by this mm -hmm. and how we begin to do that? There's so much of a conversation going on right now about how Christianity is the white man's religion and how the enslaved were forced to be Christians, that Christianity was beat into them. But in reality, especially after Nat Turner's rebellion in 1831, a lot of slaveholders did not, did not want enslaved people to go to church. They definitely did not want them to read. Certainly not the Bible. You don't want to read Ezekiel with, with God telling the Israelites to smash their enemies' babies' heads on rock. No, we're not going to read that. They don't want, you're, they're not allowed to, black people are not allowed to gather without a white person present, free or enslaved. Um, all of these restrictions start to come down the pipeline in order to, stop slave rebellions because there is this widespread belief that if enslaved people get a hold of the liberating gospel of Christ, they're going to want to be liberated. And so we're going to try to keep that from them as long as possible. To me, the idea and the fact that Christianity could be seen as so subversive and dangerous that it needed to be kept away from Black folks and Black folks still found access to it and still found a foothold in that religion and still created their own countercultural understanding of Christianity is just one of the most beautiful things. And I refuse to give that up because white Americans' version of, of the religion um, was very hypocritical at times. It's not the only version that there is. It's not the only shade that there is. Um, and it's not the only iteration of Christianity that there is. And I feel like the more that we understand that, not just even in a black-white sense, right? But in a worldwide sense. The more that we understand that Christianity is this ancient religion that started with people that don't look like you or me, I think the more, the more we don't confine Jesus to the bad acts of people who claim to follow him. Love that so much. I think that that's really helpful because I think that we, in the last... I don't know. This is like painting with just a giant like roller, not even a broad brush, but like I I think in the in the last while we've seen some like pretty bad behavior out of the church. And I mean that's like always. Oh yeah. Um but it feels like you kind of have to pick between sometimes it feels like you have to pick between caring about people and being part of the church. 
And it's not all churches and it's not all people. And certainly churches who really don't care about some people do a good job of caring about others. But Mm -hmm. it just feels like if you are, it feels like there's like, I don't know. I like, I'm not withholding words. I'm just having a hard time forming them. I really like, that's just a really warm, beautiful reminder that, that Jesus and Christianity predates all of this Mm -hmm. (laughs) and that it's been powerful all the way through and liberating for so many people and a safe place for so many people, even, even though it's, it can be used as a weapon. Mm-hmm. Um, it isn't always. Absolutely. And it hasn't always been. And that's just a, that's just a, I like that. Um, okay, let's see. Is there any, anything else I really, really want to make sure I don't miss? In the book, you talk about the difference between defending humanity and proclaiming it. And I want to just hear you talk about that real quick. I was really adamant that we have proclaiming in our subtitle, proclaiming the truth of Black dignity instead of defending. Um, Because to me, defending is this like, I'm going to go back and forth with you and I'm going to listen to your counterpoints and I'm going to offer my counterpoint and we're going to have an argument. And proclaiming is like, I'm not going to argue about it because it's just true. It's just true. Black people are made in God's image and they are they have dignity and they have significance and it's just the truth. And if you're ready to hear that truth, that's awesome. And if you're not ready to hear that truth, that's okay. We're just not ready to have a conversation. And coming to that point has been one of the most freeing and amazing things um, lately. It's just, I'm here to make a proclamation. Um, now, can that proclamation be a defense? Absolutely. But it's kind of that, I'm not going to argue about it because it's just true. It's not even a fair fight because it's just true. It's, I'm not going to argue with you that the sky is green instead of blue. It's just, I, you're saying nonsense words. And so I'm going to let you say your nonsense words. And, and that's, I hope you get help, but I, I can't help you, um, is, is kind of where I'm at with it right now, for sure. Love that. Is there, just as we're finishing, there are so many things I want to talk to you about. And I want to hear like every single story of all of the women that you like, uncovered in your last book and or not uncovered but like the stories that you Mm -hmm. you dug into and there's like so many things that we didn't talk about but I just am really I want to tell you that I'm I'm really grateful for I don't know just like a safe space to ask questions that that like I think we all as in anyone listening feel like we should have more answers as well as knowing the order of the presidents Mm -hmm. and the state capitals you know like it's just um it's hard to ask questions when you feel like you should already know the answer or when you're afraid that you might know the answer, but you might have it wrong. It's like when someone goes like, do you know who sings this? And you're like, the eagle totally. or something? Like, totally. you're like, I'm about to look so dumb. So yeah. you just say like, I don't really know. And so I just, I, thank you for letting me ask questions. Because I know that a lot of us are sitting here going like, I don't know what critical race theory is talking about. And everyone's really What's something else that you, I guess, okay, so you're go, you, going back to school mm-hmm. when you were young and when you were the only Black girl in the room. What is something that you wish more of your white friends could have known or understood? I wish we would have had to sit at the feet of more Black stories. Um, I wish we would have had times where they felt uncomfortable too. And then we found out that, you know what, it's okay because sometimes history is uncomfortable. I wish we would have talked about it more openly, more talked about that discomfort, talked about shame that can come up, what to do with that shame. I I wish we had had more open conversations um, than just, you know, the white American history status quo that so many of us got growing up. Um, Mm -hmm. I wish that, you know, I'd had a more colorful experience. And it's been really cool to see my sons having that experience in school, coming home and telling me, you know, about my son came home with a, with a um, paper. It was like a summary about Shirley Chisholm. And he had to like answer some questions about her. And I was like, that's so cool. Like I was not taught who she was in school. It just, that's so little, right? Like that's such a little thing, but it would have been so huge to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. I, we are going to have to have you on the show Again, you're gonna get you're gonna get sick of girls' night if that is even possible. Um, but really, Jasmine, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for you are a really, really, really good teacher. 
Like, I just... Thank you. You're a really, really good teacher. The way that you explain things is really, like, helpful and simple and profound all at the same time. And I just... Yeah, I'm just really grateful for you. Uh, We will link to everything, um, all of your your books, your website, social media, everything in the show notes so that everybody can follow you and so you guys can be friends. And um, I'm just really glad that we get to be friends too. Awesome. Thank you so much. I'm so glad we connected. You guys, isn't Jasmine amazing? Now, don't forget that if you ever want to find the links for anything we talk about in our Girls' Night episodes, you can always find those over in our show notes. Just head over to girlsnightpodcast.com and you'll find links for everything, including links for Jasmine, so you can pick up her book and follow along with all the great stuff she's doing. All right, friends, that's it for today's episode, but we have so much good stuff ahead still this season. And with that in mind, now is the perfect time to make sure you're subscribed. Subscribing to the show is the best way to make sure you never miss an episode. It won't send you an email or anything. It just makes sure your phone downloads the latest episode when a new one's released. And I did want to take a quick second to ask you a favor. If you enjoyed this episode or if you've been a Girls' Night fan for a while now, would you take just two quick seconds to leave us a rating and review on iTunes? Those reviews help out our podcast so much and it really would mean the world to me. So if you take two quick seconds to do that, I'd be so grateful. All right, friends, thank you so much for joining me for Girls' Night. I'll see you next week.